0: Well, good morning, Restore. There it goes. Sorry about that. So, uh, if you're just now joining us this morning, welcome. Uh, my name is Justin. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Restore. Uh, we are in a new series which I'm particularly excited about. I know I always tell you guys, I'm excited about the series that we're in. Um, but this one in particular, I am excited about the series that we're in uh, because this series, at its core, is the essence of who we are at Restore. Okay? Like, as a church, who we are as a people who follow Jesus, love Jesus, and know Jesus, this series in particular is shedding some light on uh, our just like spiritual and cultural and church formation as people. And what that means is what we are in is, is a series where we are studying basically the foundations of Christianity. We're doing this through a creed called the Nicene Creed. It was a creed that was formalized by the church, Uh, Only a few hundred years after Jesus, it's the first time and the only time in the church's history where the church, north and south, east and west, got together and said, as Christians, this is the hope that we have. As Christians, this is what commonly unites all of us. This means that there's gonna be differences culturally, there's gonna be differences theologically, there's gonna be differences in conviction. Uh, but by and large, these are the things that hold us together as believers. Okay, so, so one of the ethos of restore from the very beginning, one of the things that Nicole and I feel very strongly about and have spent much time um, wrestling with and trying to figure out how to uh, cultivate and form in us is a church that makes space for people from different backgrounds and even different theological convictions to come together and worship as one in Jesus to worship together, uh, and to be able to say, I might see this issue differently than you, but I respect you, and I love you, right? And this is something that we have, we're, this is, might be where we diverge, but here's what it is that we have in common. Why this is so foundationally uh, important for us uh, is that this allows us to love better. That's really what this series is about in the end. It's not like, yeah, we're going to feel like I want to like walk us through some like abstract and sometimes complicated theological concepts like what we're going to do this morning. But by and large, what this does is this allows us to love one another more fully and more completely. It doesn't mean that we ignore our differences, but it means that we can actually have the freedom to love one another despite our differences. And this, I will argue, is love. Uniformity is convenient, but it is not love. And long for a long time, Nicole and I have felt strongly about this, we want to be a church that loves in spite of differences. Okay, so uh, this means that um, as we learn what is it that we hold in common, this means that this gives you opportunities to love people that are different from you. Conservatives can look at progressives and say, I love you. I see very differently than you on certain spaces, but I love you in Christ. Likewise, progressives can look at conservatives and say, you know what? You remind me of my dad or whatever, you know, uh, but like I see you and I love you, right? And this is what uh, is the essence of Christian unity. The second thing that this does in the series is it actually keeps us from being persuaded by every fad and every trend that goes into Christianity. So Christianity, particularly in America, I believe it gets seduced and kind of wrapped up in all kinds of cultural trends, all kinds of sexiness and pastors and like charismatic, like big churches, all of these things uh, persuade people to follow, like this is who Jesus is, this is his heart, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. But knowing like what it is that unites us as Christians, the essentials of our Christian faith means that we can actually avoid being persuaded or led astray by fads, uh, by trends. It actually provides a little level of discernment for you, okay? So, um, as, we, as we move into this, uh, the last thing I want to say, and I'm a bit embarrassed that I've never said this before, um, but, like, you guys get uh, a Justinized version of Christianity, Like, you just do. Like, there's no way for that not to happen, right? Like, any social scientist, and that's where I come from, the social scientist, but even in the hard sciences, this is also taught. Like, there's no such thing as not having a confirmation bias. This is why you have peer-reviewed journals. Nobody can approach something completely neutral. We are completely made up of our backgrounds and our histories, things that have been said to us in the past, truths that we've always assumed, truths that we've always heard taught. Like, we're a a mixed bag of woundedness and brokenness and confidence and pride. Like, all of this creates bias, right? No social scientist worth their grain and salt ever says, I can go to a set of data and look at it entirely neutral, right? Now, that being said, like, I work hard not to give you guys a justinized version, Right, like, I work very hard and pray hard. Like, there's a lot of discernment that goes into, like, I want to create as much as I can a space to hear from God and what he is saying. That being said, it's impossible for me not to. Just like you guys all have your own versions of Christianity. Based on your own backgrounds, based on how you grew up, based on your woundedness, based on your, everything that you've got has formed a version of Christianity. And here's the thing about church, is sometimes when all of these versions start to mix, it can get messy right? Because there's a sort of sense of like, I don't get how you don't see this. But that person doesn't have the same history as you do, they don't have the same background as you do, they don't have the same like, upbringing as you do. And so part of why we're doing this is this protects us from like using our versions of Christianity, and we all have them, I would argue that even the gospel writers themselves had them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all had their own world views, which is why sometimes they write about the same event from very different perspectives, trying to prove very different points. Paul would do this. Uh, he'll have conflict with the church in Jerusalem because he's he's speaking with a church that has a very different background. Like there's all kinds of uh, even within Scripture itself, places where people have different perspectives based on their culture. And so if we really expect to ever survive healthily as a church, if we really expect to actually love one another well, part of what this means is we are dependent on recognizing I have my own biases. And so looking at the Nicene Creed, which again, going back to that was this moment when the church, north and south, east and west, got together and said, these are the things that unite us as Christians. These are the things that will always anchor our hope in Jesus. Jesus. This allows, it's a little bit like having a peer-reviewed journal, right? It's something you can kind of go back to that as best as it can is objective and allows you to look at things through this lens. And so this morning, um, this particular part of the creed we're going to be looking at this morning uh, is starting, uh, is going to talk about the resurrection, okay? But I want to pose a question uh, about the resurrection particularly this morning, um when we think of the resurrection, we think of the crucifixion, when we think of the incarnation, right, the birth of Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, we often think of, uh, this is when, right I know Jesus, that's when God became a man, right? God became human. But the question I want to ask this morning as I read this, is what happened after the resurrection? Did Jesus stop being human? And what does that actually mean for us? So the Nicene Creed here uh, says this. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay, so, so so when we think of the birth of Jesus, we often think of this is where God became human, right? Became one of us so that we could understand him, so that we could relate to him is often how we think of that. Um, but the question I want to pose this morning, especially as we get ready for Lent and Easter, is why did the resurrection happen? Why was it necessary and how does it anchor our hope as Christians? Okay? Why? Like, if I were to ask you, why was the resurrection such a beautiful part of the story, why was it a necessary part of the story? Why was it a life-giving part of the story? Was it, did it happen just so that Jesus could prove he was God? Was that all it was? Was just like a stunt to demonstrate? Or was there actually something that happened in the resurrection that now means hope for you and for me? Okay, so um, we're going to start in Romans today. Uh, And I know Romans typically is a pretty uh, dense passage. Uh, This particular passage is dense. But um, one of the things I want to challenge us with this morning is Paul, he's going to talk about the resurrection in this section. He's going to be answering this question. What does the resurrection mean? And he's going to start by saying it is against all hope or hope against hope. And here's what he's saying. Here's what the hope of the resurrection means. It means that you have hope when you can't see it you have hope when you don't understand it you have hope when it doesn't make sense to have hope anymore in other words the hope and the life that is offered to us in the resurrection of jesus is something that even in our darkest moments or even in our most confused moments we may not actually understand it doesn't make it any less true this means that your faith is not actually as dependent on you as you think it is. And he's going to talk about this today in the passage we're in. Your faith, uh, right, because when we make our faith dependent on us, when we, when we perceive how close we are to God based on how close we feel to God, we will have an incredibly unreliable faith. Because we are incredibly unreliable people even to ourselves. I violate my own moral conscience weekly. We violate our own moral consciousness. Like, our our faith is very wrapped up in our moods. And so for most of us, our Christianity feels like this a lot of times. I hear this even when I talk to you guys. Some of you are like, I'm just really far from God right now. And the question I, I, like, I want to walk through that pastorally with you. I hear what you're saying. But the question, like, I want to always, I try to do, even in those kind of moments, is you're not actually as far from him as you perceive yourself to be. Yeah, you're tired and you might be burnt out. Or, yeah, you might be struggling with something. And, like, this creates the perception that God is distant or far. But what the resurrection of Jesus means is that the hope we have in God is not dependent even on our morality. It's not even dependent, and I'll walk you through this this morning, it's not even dependent on the quality of the faith that we feel like we can produce. It's actually entirely dependent on the quality of the faith that God produces in us as a gift. Uh. Lastly, here's what this means in this passage this morning. With the resurrection of Jesus, it means learning to hope, learning to see the world upside down. It means that what actually matters in the world now, while you're in the world, won't make sense to you. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, following Jesus in the way of Jesus, actually opens us to begin to see the world differently. Our values begin to change what we think is important begins to change. What we begin to define as success begins to change. And all of this is tied to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. It redefines everything for us and anchors our hope. It means looking for heaven when all you see is earth. We'll talk a little bit more about what I mean by that. But it means always aware of the fact that you nestled in the protection and the love and the grace and the goodness of god because of jesus despite your circumstances you will always be anchored in who he is and his love for you which means that even around when you look around and all you see is death you can know that there's life working this is what resurrection means let me read the passage for us and then we'll, we'll i'll pray and we'll get started this morning starting in, uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse 18. Uh, The words will also be behind me on the screen. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sin and was raised to life for our justification. Let me pray for us and we'll get started this morning. Father, we love you. (coughs) We need you. Would you be with us for these next few minutes as we unpack a very, complicated and theologically dense passage that elaborates hope for us uh, in ways that we need it father for those of us this morning that are feeling unanchored in you who feel like we have run you off or we're not close to you or it's difficult to understand you would you be present with us we need you father we love you we pray all of these things in your name amen okay So, I recognize here, you're like, wait, we were talking about resurrection, but this entire passage was about Abraham, what's going on there. Um, So, Abraham's actually, so what Paul's doing is he's tying in the story of Abraham to the hope of the resurrection here. This is how he finishes, uh, raised to life for our justification. This is where Paul's driving this entire passage. Uh, But he's, so a little bit about Abraham's backstory. If you don't know who Abraham was, uh, Abraham was essentially one of the early uh, characters in the Old Testament who God came to and basically said, I'm going to use you to bless all people and all nations of the earth. And he pulls Abraham out of the world that he lives in and shows him how to follow him, shows him and his wife Sarah how to follow God, how to be faithful to God, how to be obedient to God. Uh, and so one, at one point, though, in this whole narrative, God promises Abraham, as we read here, uh, once he's 100 years old, hey, you're going to have a child, you're going to have offspring, you're going to have an heir. And Abraham says, "This is impossible. I'm a hundred years old. We don't know how old Sarah was, but we assume somewhere around there as well. Like our our like window for creating and producing offspring or heirs has long been God gone. And so, right here in this moment, and this is the theme of resurrection. Like this is the theme of crucifixion that Paul's driving at here. Is it's in this moment." That, Paul has brought, or that God has brought Abraham into a space where he can only be supported by God's word to him. God's promises to him, God's guarantee to him, who God's character is, God's faithfulness to Abraham. In this moment, Abraham can only be supported by this. There's no ability, there's no will, right? No matter how much you will at 100 years old, you cannot produce fertility, And so what Paul's point here is, is when we begin to think of resurrection, we need to realize something. We need to come to a space where we realize that God has brought us into a space where we can depend on nothing but him and his character and his goodness. So he brings Abraham in the space that John Calvin writes. He says, everything by which Abraham is surrounded with at this moment conflicts with the promises of God. So this is is the part that uh, is frustrating for us because very often the way that God works in our life, very often the way that he loves us, cultivates faithfulness in us, the ways that he shepherds us, the ways that he's involved in our life will not make sense to us. Our inclination when God is working most will be like Abraham to realize, wait, wait, is to look and go, I'm 100 years old. There's no possible way. None of this makes sense. And so it looks like here, what Paul's done is he set up an impossible standard of faith. So like I've got to be like Abraham and have this super faith and never doubt God and never call into question the promises of what God is saying. Uh, And I want to look a little bit closer at that because I don't think that's actually what Paul's saying here. Um, And here's what I mean by that. This faith that Abraham has that is unwavering is something that Paul will emphasize actually didn't come from Abraham. It was gifted to him by God. Okay, so uh, starting in verse 21. Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And so Paul will elaborate on this. This word credited to him is important here. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised jesus our lord from the dead okay so so that word credited uh can also be translated worded okay so at first it looks like abraham produced a really good quality faith and god looked at it and was like approved you get credit right that's kind of what we think of as credit right your credit scores your faith score right you have a good enough credit score you get approved for a house Good enough faith score here you get approved for a kid right that's kind of how we can kind of read this passage but that word credited actually can also be translated worded i think it's actually it makes me sound really snobby when i'm like i don't know why your translators didn't work translate that um i don't mean to sound snobby with that but i do think that the word worded here helps capture the essence of what paul is saying more because when god speaks words something he speaks it into existence he creates nothing From nothing, he creates beauty, right? This is God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. So Paul's drawing on this theme that God will take brokenness and darkness and chaos and speak beauty and life and goodness into it. So when he says this has been credited to him as righteousness, what he's saying is God has worded or created in Abraham righteousness. And this righteousness that Abraham now has because God has created it in him, is allowing Abraham to endure when it doesn't make sense to endure. Because God is creating, God is crediting inside of Abraham something new. This faith is producing in Abraham a love and a devotion and an obedience to God that allows him to endure when it no longer makes sense for him to endure. Going back to our original, as we started the sermon, one of the things I want to point out is so much of our faith journey, so much of what is a resurrection, is looking around and not seeing God working and realizing he's been working powerfully all along. We often get frustrated with God. Right? How often do we get frustrated or angry with God because our faith journeys don't pan out or don't look like, or our lives don't pan out or don't look like what we want them to. And as long as we feel uh, that God has let us down, right? This, this, is the, this is the conundrum of faith, by the way. This is the, this is the paradox of faith. This is the struggle of faith. This is what God's producing in Abraham, and this is what we will struggle constantly to produce in and in ourselves, like constantly look for as God produces it in us, is this struggle to recognize even when my life looks very disagreeable to me, It is not an indication that God is not working out favorably in my, like working out my circumstances favorably. It's not an indication that he's withheld his goodness from me. It's not an indication that he doesn't love me. And it's not an indication that he's going to let this, whatever it is that I'm experiencing, this discouragement that I have, be the final word in my life. God credited Abraham and counted this as righteousness. God gifted Abraham this faith. Uh, by knowing who Christ is, we can begin to make sense of our faith journeys uh, because we begin to see, right? we begin to, like This is part of what the faith journey is, is. We begin to see, we begin to learn, we begin to understand what we've never understood before. It's about beginning to see the world upside down. And so while Abraham looks at the promises of God and says, this is impossible, God produces in Abraham a faith that is able to endure what doesn't make sense to endure. And when that happens, God produces a righteousness in Abraham that God will use and then ultimately use to bless all the nations of the world. So what does all this mean with resurrection? Okay, so the question I want to ask you uh, is, how many people, when they saw the crucifixion that day, do you think lost their faith? All of this is tied, I'm trying to tie all of this in together, but as you think of the crucifixion, how many people looked at that and said, this is not the way that God saves the world? The cross has been a little bit romanticized to us because it's 2,000 years later and we don't execute people on crosses anymore, but the cross was an incredibly shameful thing. If you were a Christian in the early, early years, like you trying to convince someone else to follow Jesus, and they're like, well, what happened to Jesus? And you had to say something along the lines of he was crucified on a cross, this would immediately have produced either like just like real repulsion, like real disgust, or just total dismissal. And what this means is often the ways that God works and saves both us and redeems the world around us, we are inclined to dismiss as insignificant. Insignificant as trivial, or as impossible. This is what resurrection is, this whole story of resurrection. It starts with looking at the crucifixion and going this is not how God saves the world. But Because of resurrection, we have the promise that even when God is working in ways that do not make sense to us, he is bringing about his greatest and ultimate and highest good for us okay so um starting uh, in verse 24 paul says this but also for us so all of this paul's going into the story of abraham the history of abraham all the impossibility of abraham's story he says all of this even the righteousness that was gifted to god gifted to abraham through god all of this was actually for us okay so this is why i said what like paul's tying all of this into resurrection here he says uh to whom god will credit righteousness us to whom God will word righteousness, to whom God will create in us fullness and wholeness and completeness. For us who believe in him who has raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered <coughs> over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Because Jesus was human, right? When he was raised from the dead, He maintained his humanity. This means that heaven and earth have been constantly, have been permanently and eternally wielded together. This means that you will never, ever again, in your earth that you experience, in your reality that you experience, in your world that you experience, never have a moment where God is not present, where God is not working so much of the journey of faith for us is recognizing the gift that's been given to us even when it doesn't make sense to it's beginning to see the world upside down so when jesus's humanity um, by the way he didn't stop being human after he was raised from the dead what this means is our humanity has forever and always been eternally joined into the humanity of christ that sits in the presence of the father This means this is the guarantee that despite how you feel of your faith, despite how weak you might feel in your faith, despite how distant you might feel from God, who you are is nested in the presence of the Father for eternity. It cannot be separated. It cannot be lost. It cannot be uh, diminished in any kind of way. Even your sin and disobedience cannot separate you from the love of Christ. This is something that Paul will say later in Romans. Now, that doesn't mean that we embrace disobedience, and Paul's not, uh, not, Paul's not encouraging us to do that either. He's not saying, so if, you, if, you, if like really grace is completely contingent on God giving it to you, that doesn't mean that you get to go and do whatever you want, taking advantage of it. But if you're doing that, you don't actually understand the goodness that God's given you. What this means is, like Abraham, our faith journey is so much more about us learning to recognize the goodness of God in our life. Paul will say, uh, this is what he means when he says in Ephesians 5.14, Awake, sleeper, rise from the dead. The Messiah will give you light. Colossians 3, 1 through 2, Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. So what he's drawing off there uh, is this idea that Jesus' humanity is now nested with the Father, which means that you can continuously keep this hope in mind as you face discouragement in life. You have been raised uh, with Christ. You're like, I haven't been raised yet. I haven't died yet. What Paul's saying is, the hope that you have is now nestled safely in Jesus who united himself to you. And now because Jesus is in the presence of the Father, God's presence with you will never be defeated. It will never be destroyed and it will never be repulsed even by you. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Okay, so um, what Paul is saying here as we get ready to close is when he talks about setting your mind on earthly, not on earthly things, but on things above. This typically gets thought of as like, this means we should like abstain from the world. Right? We should like hands off, like step back, let's set our mind on getting to heaven. But that's not at all, That's actually the exact opposite of what Paul's saying here. He's saying because Jesus, is, his humanity has been invested in the Father, Earth has now been permanently joined to heaven. And when Jesus return, heaven will be permanently joined with earth. This means that our world and our realities have infinite value to God now. The world itself is not something that's going to be discarded. Rather, it's something that has been safely and eternally nested in the presence of the Father. And when Jesus returns, he brings heaven to earth with him. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 15 20, Christ is the first fruits. Okay? The work of Jesus on the cross, being raised from the dead, secure in the eternal presence of the Father, is the first fruits of you and me. Christ didn't stop having things in common with you and me when he was raised from the dead, he didn't stop to be, go back to being only just God. What it meant was we have the same future that Jesus has now, he's the first fruits of us. And so I know that this morning the sermon is probably a lot more theological than I'd like it to be, Um, but there's, there's something here that I want us to grab, and it's this hope that is not dependent or contingent on our circumstances or our feelings or our moods or even our sin or our ability to conjure up faithfulness to God. Our hope is secured in Christ who is seated in the eternal presence of the Father, the right hand of the Father, as Paul will say. This is, by the way, the kind of <laughs> faith uh, that early Christians were able to die for, right? So we repeatedly don't wrestle with this because most of us aren't thinking about, Do I, if I have my faith, will I die? But this was the thing that gave many of the Christians, these words here in particular, gave many early Christians the courage to face lions in an arena because they knew that no matter what happened, they were secure in Christ who was their first fruits. So what that means for us uh, is that our humanity has ever been joined uh, in heaven because of Christ. This gives our world tremendous value. Okay? This means that our goal as Christians isn't to duck and cover until we get to heaven. It's not about getting to heaven, it never was. It's about heaven coming back to earth in Christ. This means we have to start seeing earth as we see heaven. We have to begin to start recognizing earth as run in the way that heaven will run this means in passages where Jesus says things like lay down your life right? these things that don't make sense to the world or how we define success what we begin to do is we begin to see the world from a different lens and a different perspective What we begin to realize is the way that the earth runs and the power structures and the, and the things that control the world now are no actually not the things that give it life anymore because of Christ's resurrections. Right? This means when a young black man is killed in police custody, murdered, right? there can be a sense of this is not the way it's supposed to be. This brings us to a sense of there needs to be justice. When we look around we see homelessness, when we see poverty, all of these things, what, what, what this should do for us is begin to give us a sense that, wait, Earth is no longer in charge. Heaven's in charge. Heaven's running things now. The source of all that is life on earth is heaven. And there are going to be spaces where that doesn't make sense, and we will really struggle to see that. But this is why Paul wants to correlate. This is why Paul wants to connect all of this to Abraham's story. Most of the the way that you see heaven running earth will seem impossible to you. Most of the way that you understand God's presence in your life will seem impossible to you. Most of the way that you see, you think heaven should be running earth, you'll see is a far cry from how it actually is. But this does not mean that God's not working. It does not mean that he's not moving. Heaven is now the control center for earth. And so part of our faith journey is learning to see that. I love what N.T. Wright said. He said, we, we can, if we choose, screen out the heavenly dimension and live as a flatlander. What he's saying is we, we can, if we choose, to still buy into the way that the world supposedly runs, with the way the power structures run, with the way um, getting ahead works, with the way, um, right, all the ways that the world works. We can buy into that still, or we can begin to see that we're buying into a system that will eventually go bad. This is why when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, or lay down your life, when your enemy mistreats you, offer them a gift. These things don't make sense on an external level because it's not the way the world runs. When your enemy mistreats you, you don't offer them a gift. But what Jesus is trying to get us to see is the way that the world is working is now being turned upside down because heaven is in control. Because the humanity of Jesus representing earth and all of us has been united to the presence of the Father. This is why Paul says, awake sleeper. Uh, I use the analogy often. I I do think that faith um, is a lot like learning to listen to the one that loves you. I also think it's a lot like having, (coughs) excuse me, your eyes adjusted when you're in a dark room. When the God of infinite light steps into your dark reality, it takes a minute for our eyes to be adjusted. So much of our faith journey is learning to re and have our, our, our hearts reshaped as God credits our words or creates in us a new reality, a new kind of hope that helps us surrender, that helps us let go, that helps us uh, trust that he is working even when we don't see or understand how he's working. Let me pray for us. Uh, and invite uh, the band of communion to come up today. (coughs) Well, Father, we love you. But we admit that we don't always do that well. Um, Would you help us? Would you have some mercy on us, Father? Father, would you have mercy on us for all the ways that we are um, so broken? For all the ways that we refuse to trust you? For all the ways that we refuse to see what you're doing, for all the ways that we look at um, the impossibility of your promise, the impossibility of the resurrection, Either find ourselves in despair or defensiveness. Father, would you have mercy on all of us this morning? We need you. We love you. Would you show us how to love each other? We don't always do that well either. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.